2: Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I am the editor of the TLS. Thea is away this week and I get in trouble for suggesting she's skiving off somewhere. So I'll say nothing more. But I think she is skiving off somewhere. Alongside me instead this week is Features Editor, Minister of Fun, Commissioning Editor for TLS Books, of course, Roz Denine. Roz, hello.
3: Hi. I've got lots of jobs.
2: <laughs> you do have lots. They're all good jobs, though.
3: No, they are. Just, I think you've got, yeah. in
2: some ways, you've got the best jobs. I do. Yes. Thank you. Do you believe that? I do believe that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, good. Uh, where do you stand on cheese and fish?
3: Oh gosh, I don't care. You this don't is care. the tuna melt thing. It's
2: the tuna melt thing. But Eric Rauchway, who's a noted American historian, uh, took to Twitter, as they mm-hmm. say, to challenge Thea's orth- orthodoxy on on this and said, "Shellfish are different from fish. Shellfish can have cheese."
3: I think everyone can do what they want.
2: How Do you good? know,
3: I actually, I actually care so little about it that I googled it to have something to say and I found something out. Go on. It's just because when these recipes in Italy... When these recipes... Try when, and tell it a bit! <laughs> when these Italian recipes were made, yes, the, the people who made the good cheese yes. were landlocked and didn't get the fish. And the people who who oh. were at the coast and made the fish recipes didn't, work near the cheese. didn't go and get the cheese they didn't need it because they had the fish and so actually yeah. it was just, it's just like slow food and that's why these rules came yeah. about but that it's actually just a that's, geographic thing that was
2: borderline interesting thanks <laughs> And thank you for taking the time to, to, to you're research it. you very welcome. At this, we've got a very special subs offer for our podcast listeners. You can try the TLS digitally and deliver to your door for just £5 or $5 for six weeks. That's the best deal out there. So listen up if you want to subscribe. If you're in the US or Canada, go to podcast.the-tls.com slash pod19. Is that clear, Roz? Did you get that? I get a round that. of applause. Yeah, podcastthe um, yeah. slash pod19. And if you're anywhere else in the world, including the UK, go to the-tls.co.uk slash pod19. That made more sense, I think. I'm getting yeah, there. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll say that again next week. Well, there, if you want to do that, you get the best deal out there. This week on the show, we have a life writing special in the paper, and it's led by a piece on the king of biographers, Robert Caro, still writing his life of Lyndon Johnson, but pausing to share some tricks of the trade in a memoir. Ruth Skurr, a very fine biographer in her own right, will tell us more. From a modern master to a figure from the ancient world, Diogenes Laertius, who wrote Lives of the Eminent Philosophers, a great, eccentric and often inaccurate guide to early thinkers. It sounds a lot of fun. Dimitri Leviton has been reading it for us. And why bother with literary criticism? Something of a dangerous question for the TLS, you might think, but Michael LaPointe has answered it anyway. Should we really be bemoaning the death of the critic? He'll let us know. Robert Caro is one of the great living biographers involved in one of the major life-writing projects of our time. But Ruth Skur argues this week that he's often mischaracterised and misunderstood as simply writing big books about great men for a male audience. Instead, Caro's lifelong subject is simply political power, as his new book Working makes clear. That method is in essence one of meticulous and personal research, whatever the cost. When writing about the isolation of Lyndon Johnson's upbringing in Hill County, Texas, for example... Caro moved there himself, much to his wife's annoyance. Such assiduous persistence comes at a cost. He's 83 now and his oeuvre is incomplete. He's still working on the fifth volume of the years of Lyndon Johnson and promises his own major memoir too. Working is, according to Skur, an insurance policy or safe deposit box against the march of time. It provides us with valuable insight into the Caro approach and his two complementary interview techniques. Long pauses... He has a code SU for shut up, which populates his notebooks, coupled with repeated questions. Let's try them now on Ruth Skurr, who's reviewed Working This Week. Ruth, hello. Hello. I'm not going to shut up yet, but I shortly will. (laughs) Why is he seen as macho? I guess that's the first question, because you you say at the beginning of your review, he's seen as this big man writing about big men.
4: Sure. So I think the size of his books, um, most of them over a thousand pages long and the subjects that he chooses, but it's also to do with the way they're marketed. So um, when I was doing this piece, I asked the publishers to send me the most recent paperback of Caro's first book, which was about Robert Moses, the master builder of New York, published in in 1974, never out of print. Um, And they'd reprinted 38 endorsements of Caro's work. Um, from the great and the good scholars, politicians, and only two of those endorsements were from women and You have to wonder what kind of message does that send
2: and Is there something about the idea of man spreading and mansplaining and all of this is that is that the thought that if you it is something masculine about big thousand word? butch volumes of, of prose?
4: No, I think it goes through the whole industry. I think if, you know, perhaps a book like that arrives on a, on a commissioning editor's desk, obviously not at the TLS, um, and they, they send it out to 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 a male reviewer, and then that male reviewer gets quoted in in endorsing it and and selling it, and and it's a sort of self perpetuating idea that actually that kind of book is is what you buy your your father or your brother for for Christmas.
2: Yeah, that's is, weird, isn't it?
3: Is that a justified position? Because from your review, I get the sense that his books are very much about the human cost of economic exactly. power and they're very I... careful and they're very they're about you say necessary trespass it doesn't mm. it doesn't actually sound that macho the work when you when you I describe completely like that.
4: agree and that's what the revelation really of this new book working where he he kind of takes you a bit behind the scenes and explains um, what he's trying to do and what his approach actually is and there he's very clear that you know in order to understand power you have to understand the powerless over whom it's exercised you don't just interview powerful people you interview the people who didn't have power whose lives were disrupted by the exercise of power
2: because he starts out as a journalist doesn't he
4: yeah, that's right. So he started out um as a as a reporter on on the New Brunswick Daily Home News in in New Jersey. And that was where he had the experience of of, of riding the poles with his with his boss and and seeing a a group of African American protesters being basically forcibly removed from the polling station and he he says that at that point he realised you know, he he as a journalist he, he as a writer wanted to be on the side of the protesters um, and he, he got out of the car according to him um, and he found a new job um, on Newsday uh, on Long Island which was a paper that sort of championed um, causes and was more the kind of investigative work that he wanted to do
2: um, and that type of Taking trouble to go and find out the facts—that's what he's known for, isn't it? He's sort of the patron saint of research. He,
4: yes, that's right. He, yes. So they call it in the trade the sort of doing a caro, you know, turning over every every single stone, being unable to write the book until you've done masses and masses of, of research. I was actually reminded, though, of the Nobel Prize winner Svetlana Alexievich when I was reading mm. the way he approaches his his research, because it seems to me that he he's very interested in going and collecting the testimony and finding the people who were eyewitnesses and recording that before it's too late and starts to to die out within a generation. And Svetlana Alexievich is an investigative journalist as well. And I think actually there is is some overlap in, in, in their approaches.
3: And she interviews people as well over and over again, the same yeah, people collecting basically right. the same information.
4: One of the parts in working where I really thought of her was when Kara was describing how when he first went to Hill Country and he wanted to interview some of, of the women there about what their lives had been like before the electricity came in into that, that part of, of Texas they wouldn't really speak to him. So he had assistance from, from his wife, Ina, who befriended some of these women and gradually they opened up to her and then he was able to to to, to interview them. But that, that sort of way of, of being absolutely determined to try and find a way, whatever it takes, to get hold of the testimony and, and the evidence is, is, is really very powerful.
2: Is the corollary of that that we undervalue him as a stylist? Because... The, like he's doing a caro isn't writing beautiful books doing a caro is actually doing a lot of research do you think at, in some ways he's so good at that that we, we don't recognize the stylist in him
4: well that is really interesting and that definitely comes through very clearly in working that he it really really matters to him his style um how how he Perceives his his work is completely caught up in this idea that writing nonfiction should be no less of a of a creative art, artistic act at the level of the prose um, than writing fiction or writing poetry. So I think it, it's it's very very strong in him. He says that if he could, you know, he rewrites his his drafts over and over again. If he could, he says he'd rewrite the published books. And there's a fascinating story um, which had actually been been published before, I think. But when um, the New Yorker uh, exerted four sections of his first book, they tried to change the the prose to make it. You know, conform to their style, or perhaps because they thought it should be different. And he was absolutely berserk, and there's no way he was going to have his his style edited in that way. And is
2: it good? I mean, you've read a lot of him. I think you? so.
4: Yeah, I really do. I think I think he's got. Um, it's very spare. It's 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 very compelling reading. I mean, obviously, when you open one of these thousand page books, part of you thinks, "God, is it? You know, is this really going to be worth it? Am I going to be able to to do this?" But then you start to read it, and it's it is so. So beautifully and compellingly written that you just sort of fly, fly along.
2: Is he a whale in a bathtub here, though? Um, uh, meaning, meaning that there's five volumes of Lyndon John- mm. a life of Lyndon Johnson. So you have this great mm-hmm. stylist, this great researcher, and he's written five. Thousand, word, thousand page vol- volumes of a life of Lyndon Johnson. Who, yeah, you know, was, and he hasn't was, 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 and hasn't finished, exactly. And, and he was, Lyndon Johnson was president at an incredible time. But yeah, he he's only just
4: become president. Yeah, he, he wasn't an
2: incredible president. He was a one term president. Um, he's not going to be necessary if he wrote a list of great American figures, you wouldn't necessarily get to Lyndon Johnson. All I'm saying is, is it a bit of a shame that he's devoted all of his time to five volumes of a a person's life and just got to the presidency?
4: No, no, not at all. That's the whole point. The, The collective name for those books is The Years of Lyndon Johnson. So yes, the focus is Johnson, and he's the main person or the main thread, but it's those years in American history. I mean, that's why people use the word epic about these books, because actually it's so, it's a sweep through through those times and the movement for for civil rights and then that turning in, into vietnam and all all of the things that are happening and because of the way he he obs- he, he works and researches and, and writes you you have this whole vista on that that period of history so it's not just you know this this particular man and this is the kind of mama lady like to have for breakfast or or, or whatever it, it really is projecting onto that that broad broad historical cast list of of people.
2: And that's the America of the of the 50s and 60s I suppose. So it is mm. it is a it is a critical time.
4: Exactly.
2: Has he inspired you Ruth because you're writing a big book about uh, a great man in typically macho fashion?
4: So <laughs> I got a bit of a shock when um Carrie's wife, you know, Caro is quoted as saying to him oh for goodness sake, couldn't you just do a biography of Napoleon? I'm thinking what does she mean by that? Then we could go and live in Paris and we wouldn't have to live in, in hill country or, or or something along those lines. But I think what really resonates for me um, with writing about Napoleon is this idea that in order to, to understand the powerful you have to understand their context, you have to understand the obscure people, the powerless people, the people who had the sort of cameo insights into what what was going on, and that you can assemble um a, a very interesting portrait of someone by broadening your focus in that way.
2: So you try to do a Caro. It's fair to say
4: I didn't think I was, but now that I've read Working, maybe
2: <laughs> Ruth's good. Thank you very much indeed.
4: <laughs> thank you. Bye.
2: <laughs> Lovely. Uh, have you read any, Rose?
3: What, Caro? Yeah. No, I'm going to now. I'm going to now. I'm totally, Although, totally sold.
2: So the first one's called The Path to Power in 1982.
3: Yeah, and that one's about Robert Moses. No,
2: no, no, no. That the f- the power broker is Robert Moses. Oh, sorry. The, the yeah, The first yeah. Lyndon Johnson is called The Path to Power right. in 1982. Yeah. And then there's, I think, the fifth one. We're just getting to the presidency.
3: Well, I'd quite like to know because he's 83 now. So and he promises to finish the Lyndon Johnson and to write his own memoir, but yeah. he might not be able to. I wonder who, if he had all the time in the world, who we would do next.
2: Yeah, I, exactly. because
3: like, do you think? Don't you think he'd be quite good on Trump?
2: Well, no, he's the. I really feel he's the anti.
3: Yeah, but that isn't that doesn't make it perfect because he's he's not salacious. No, he's not going to get engaged in any of it. He's just going to see it.
2: But the headline for Ruth's piece is a quote from Carrie: "Just the truth takes time," yeah. which is about the most anti-Trump thing you could possibly imagine. Totally. You know? So I wonder whether care, I mean, whether. We don't live in a world that cares at all about facts. And trying to fact-check Trump is maybe just playing a different or sport. Or maybe
3: it's just too soon.
2: Well, there's, that's, a different, that's yeah. a different point. The great writing might take a long time to come. Anyway, both, should we both go and read it? all? Yeah. I think there's 5,000 pages. We could
3: split it up.
0: Yeah, I'll read the <laughs> first one. We'll, we'll
2: come back and report.
0: Okay. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com.
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you.
0: That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash-switch. Forty five dollars upfront for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
3: Literary criticism is dead. It's not happening. The golden age is over. Don't believe me? Well, who is the Lionel Trilling of today? Where is our Christopher Hitchens? Who is the modern Zontag? Who is using literature as the source material for their deep investigations into contemporary life? As Michael LaPointe puts it in the TLS this week, the past appears as a zone of glorious combat in which critics fought hand to hand and books were cleansed in blood. Nowadays, we are too concerned with popularity for this wholesome toughening up. Critics today must be sensitive, politically correct and inoffensive. 80% of American newspaper and magazine cultural critics have been fired in the 21st century and their job has been outsourced to anyone with an internet connection. The reviews of a new book on Amazon will likely have more effect on sales than the reviews in any of the remaining literary journals. Reviewing two books in the paper this week, Michael Appoint questions the veracity or helpfulness of thinking in terms of a golden age of literary criticism and he joins us now. Hi, Roz. The first of the books that you look at for us this week is called American Audacity in Defense of Literary Daring by William Geraldi. What are Geraldi's fears for criticism?
1: His main thrust is that critics have lost what he calls audacity, which he seems to equate with a certain sort of intensity, a kind of visionary exuberance or excess that in a way uh, doesn't really have a, a kind of practical recommendation to it. Um, but is rather a sort of spiritual element, um, a certain potency to the the criticism. And when you begin to uh, read the book and start to analyze what he's um, really believing is lacking, um, it, it has a certain acrimonious uh, uh, feel to it. Um, he f- seems to feel as though um, critics are uh, sort of insufficiently um, uh, energized or or um, uh, on the attack, um, and this strikes me as being a fairly consistent uh, view with critics of his ilk. Um, I should mention, of course, that it's a book that contains many many essays that some of which are very uh, very strong indeed. Mm-hmm. Um, but that the cumulative effect of of these this collection of essays uh, is to give you the sense that critics today are are somewhat. Uh, flabby or... Uh, uh, and they,
3: they sort of emphasize yeah. too much the sort of the feelings that the author produces in the reader rather than the technical precision of the text. Is that, is that his yeah, argument?
1: That's, that's, a, that's kind of a, a bet noir of his, is that today's critics are always writing about their emotions, um, their, their feelings toward books, as opposed to uh, kind of getting at them on a, on a technical level and yet, at the same time, this technical precision that he feels is lacking um, is—he feels it is equally lacking—is a—is a kind of intensity. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a at once there's too much emotion, but not enough passion, um, and it's in this sort of. It's in this kind of contradiction that the psychological uh, features behind his critique become apparent.
2: But is is the problem, and presumably he acknowledges this, that once you kind of lose deference for authority, which is the sort of spirit of the age, sort of postmodern spirit of the age, critics matter less because people's individual authoritative opinions matter less. So the critics could be writing the most technically precise, daring, audacious, macho, uh, reviews in the world, but ultimately the the notion of a person setting uh, a trend or, or or passing judgment from on high—that's the thing that we've lost in the culture, not necessarily which has got nothing to do with the quality of the criticism.
1: That's that's I mean that's a very astute point. The at the same time that uh, he identifies the material conditions that have changed, which I think are undeniable to to us. Um, it's not quite apparent how this affects the actual practitioner of literary criticism, uh, or affects the the work itself. Um, the we the critic has been knocked off the perch as kind of grand cultural arbiter, um, but how that exactly affects how you write criticism, or what or what the the pleasure of reading strong criticism is, that's not quite as apparent as as the critique that he, that he's making.
3: Yeah, so as you say, it's not the fact, the case anymore, that the mainstream is a literary critic's entitlement, access to the mainstream, or their right, um, but they can still continue doing what they're doing brilliantly anyway.
2: How does that link to political correctness then? So his concern is now, this is, and this is the, the, the classic plangent moan of the old man that you hear in all sorts of areas, mm-hmm. that, that his views are everyone's so desperate to be politically correct they've lost any form of critical precision.
1: Yeah, the uh, there's a there's a real a really slippery kind of uh, use of political correctness, uh, emotion, um, uh, kind of navel gazing. Uh, all these things are sort of combined in in, in the work of this writer and, and others uh, like him. And I guess what I, I guess that that links back to his notion of audacity that if the if the critic is checked by any kind of fear about being pilloried for not being sufficiently politically correct, then their audacity, their willingness to, to kind of go that extra distance or say what they really mean is thwarted. And that for him is, is part of the, the effect of the, sort of the tyranny of, of political correctness and how it's essentially annihilating uh, the critics' willpower.
3: What's your rebuttal to that? Do you think, do you think he's right?
1: Uh, I don't think he's right. Or I should say, I don't think he's only right. I I think that there are, are, of course, critics who maybe pull their punches because they feel like they're not being politically correct. But part of my broader point in the piece is that these critiques that he's making of today have always been with literary criticism even in the period that he kind of holds up as being the exemplary period the mid 20th century American period back then critics were often complaining about how critics would be too structured by their political ideologies and wouldn't therefore be making a kind of uh, coherent or, or objective literary analysis because they'd be politically influenced it's just that today the politics that critics like Giraldi seem to fear most are Identity politics, but you know, 50 years ago or what have you, it, would, it might have been something about, you know, kind of Cold War politics or something like that. But there's mm. always been ideology that has been in tension with literary analysis. So I don't really feel as if the problem is any worse today. It's just the terms of the of the argument have changed.
2: And actually, it's, it's ultimately about a loss of states, isn't it? Because 50 years ago if you were a privileged person, predominantly white male, you could say, I think this book is good, this book is rubbish, and that opinion was in some way set in stone. Now the field for discussion is opened up to people who were previously perhaps silenced, institutionally even silenced, and that's threatening to a certain type of person, isn't it, ultimately, because the field is all of a sudden a lot more populated with a lot more divergent opinions, so no one opinion that you might hold is is sufficient to carry the day.
1: That's right. And that's an argument that it would be interesting to hear one of the critics in question discuss. It always feels as if they're talking about something else uh, when they're talking about you know, um, their their fear that the literary critic has lost uh, their power. Mm. Because at the same time that maybe the mid-20th century is the period that these critics really admire, and there's all this great criticism coming out of it, you can't simultaneously or one can't simultaneously make the argument that you know, that period was full of this, this richness and this depth of literary criticism, and then, you know, ignore how today's literary field has a genuine diversity to it that, that was simply impossible 50 years ago.
3: Um, Can I move you on quickly to the second book you looked at for us, which sure. is called Hater by John Semley. Can you tell us why you hate it so much? <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, but, so, a book, somebody may be pleased to know, I truly despised. Yes. Is the uh, is the line yeah. from
1: the review? Yeah. Well, it's called Hater, and it's the book that asks its its readers to give respect to the hater, or uh, that the hater can actually be a model for critics. Uh, and so, yes, I wrote that. You know, in a way, he might be oddly pleased to know that I, I, I hated the book um, because he did. He does. You know. Put the hater up as a kind of exemplary uh, figure. Um, I hated it because the terms of the argument just fall apart so rapidly and so thoroughly that it's a it's a perplexing read and a frustrating one. The um, it, it's, it it struck me as the kind of book that that you that the title comes first, and <laughs> you you think to yourself, oh, this will be fun. This will be an easy kind of a romp of an of a book to to write uh hater you know what could be it'd be fun um but once you start kind of actually putting it on the page the logical implications of the argument become really really unsavory and so the whole book reads as this sort of backing away from the term hater to the point where the term hater just becomes something like free thinker or skeptic uh or just a variety of of Common features that that any critic, you know, any halfway decent critic has in the toolbox,
3: and it includes an unintentional defense of trolling. Is that right? Well,
1: it becomes that, right? Yeah. I mean, if you be- if if the premise is that a kind of hater response uh, is is a uh, a valuable response to to virtually any uh, text that you encounter, uh, I, I kind of fail to see how that doesn't logically become a defensive trolling eventually because why you should start from a hostile position as a critic is completely arbitrary it doesn't there's no reason to it or the only what the only figure in society who functions like that is the internet troll who mm. will actually, hate absolutely anything. But
2: it's just that both of these books seem to me to come from a cliche that may or may not be true which has been a cliche that everyone always believes. When you get to a certain age, you look around at the Namby Pamby milksop youth and say, well I look at them, they don't have strong enough opinions, they don't you know, run far enough in the mornings, they don't hate enough, they're all too busy you know, making daisy chains and singing Kumbaya. Old men have said that for as long as they've been old men. They've looked at the young of the today and then, well they don't they don't know what hardship is they don't know what tough thinking is is mm. is it any more than that just the, it's a sort of the, the the angry spasm of of certain type of middle age
1: i i mean other than the fact that semley as far as i'm aware is a youngish man and the same is with giraldi he's not he's not like an old man they might be sort of old before their time and all young way, fogies
2: i, I like yeah. Yeah, <laughs>
1: young fogies but the i i do think that the the, the one difference of today from the, the people that you're describing that are, that are a cliche is that the social media element has sort of thrown a kind of gasoline onto the, the everlasting flame of this sort of old foggy ire. Um, the opportunity to be outraged uh, is so uh, common now for these figures that uh, there's a certain sort of vehemence and maniacal quality to it that strikes me as, as slightly unique you know it's not quite a the critiques stop being sort of measured in a way and they start becoming really unhinged when they start to engage with social media which they perceive as sort of being equivalent to the audience or the the common reader or whatever but the
2: other i mean we can't get into this now but the other question is how you make money um from it because i'm always struck that when you read books of i think it's an Ian McEwan book where someone basically makes a living in london as a literary critic oh, and has enough right. money to has enough money to buy a house you know buy a flat in mm. some central like london
3: friends.
2: and you kind of think <laughs> there must have been a period and this is probably where the golden age argument has a bit of weight there was a period where mm-hmm. if you were lucky enough to break in to the hallowed halls no,
0: sure.
2: you could make a living thinking beautiful thoughts and now thinking beautiful thoughts is harder to make money from that's possibly a fair criticism
1: Oh, definitely. I mean, I don't. I think that there's consistently valuable arguments to have about the material conditions of literary culture and how they're changing over time. The only thing that I would ask people to do is just is begin to identify how that Ian McEwen character, uh, him or herself, lived within the aberration. They were the exception, not the rule. Mm, yeah. uh, the mid 20th century, the post-war period of when you know. You could get like a six-figure book deal uh, advance for for just like pitching a collection of you know criticism over lunch or something like that. Whatever this great time was, <laughs> that was the exception, not the rule. I don't uh, think that you know materially writers are in better shape than they were two or three decades ago. Although many writers of color would probably say the opposite because they're actually breaking through and doing some of the most important work now. So there's always that element to it as yeah, well. Very true. But the material conditions, you know, are, are worsening for a lot. There's a lot of layoffs. There's not as much money floating around, but what I want to resist is kind of having the center of gravity be that period of boom, that that is the measure, uh, by which we assess the quality of today's literary culture materially. We can't deny that it's, it's worse now in, in, in many ways but how that exactly that changes the quality of literary criticism itself as a practice or a pursuit i don't i don't follow i don't accept that's
2: that's uh, that's
1: a very good point indeed i uh, think we we'll have to end it there yeah
2: we will michael Lapointe, thank you very much indeed
1: thank you thanks for having me
2: Diogenes Laertius, profiled by Dimitri Levitin this week, is something of an anti-Robert Caro. In Levitin's words, his authorial strategy seems to have been simple, to throw together every morsel of information that he could get his hands on with little concern for overall coherence or for the reliability of his sources. The result was The Lives of Eminent Philosophers, published in the 3rd century AD. And Diogenes provides readable and entertaining accounts of his own version of the powerful and patriarchal, ancient philosophers representing that grossly under Appreciated demographic, men with beards. So why should we still read him now? Dimitri Levitin makes the case entertainingly in the TLS this week and joins us on the line. Dimitri, welcome.
5: Thank you. Thanks, Dick.
2: Uh, you call Diogenes the most ridiculed historian of philosophy of all time. Uh, wh- why is he ridiculed so much? well he's
5: ridiculed because he seems to tell us almost everything apart from what we actually want to know (laughs) that's to say he tells us about philosophers diets he tells us about their appearance he tells us what they wore he tells us about their sex lives but he tells us very very little uh, and certainly not very accurately about their actual ideas and as you might imagine, most philosophers are quite uh, intellectually minded and, and they, they want to know about ideas <laughs> rather than sex life.
2: Yeah, I, I have to say that I probably am interested in the sex lives of philosophers. Who is it? Is it, is it Plato who's the big... Um
5: He's certainly given rather a rampaging libido by Diogenes Laertius. Whether that's accurate or not is debatable. Certainly he draws on love poems that Plato is supposed to have written to various young men and women, um, not all of which were certainly by Plato. In fact, most likely they weren't.
3: How How reliable is he as a source for all these things? He's pretty
5: unreliable in one way. That is to say, he seemed to have access to a lot of sources, which he read completely uncritically. He picked them up off the shelf, transcribed what was into them, whether it contradicted another source or not, and then went on to the next one. So, for example, he'll happily report the story of Pythagoras having a golden thigh, which we can probably assume isn't true. On the other hand, that kind of lack of critical acumen can sometimes be a blessing in disguise, because if someone simply transcribes everything they have, it means that they probably haven't added much of their own, or at least invented much of their own. So we can get on with the task of trying to sort out what's true and what isn't.
2: And is that why the book is important, do you think, Dimitri, because it's a source, it's er, a very early source, and so he would have had access to stuff that's been lost, and so it's just a compendium of interesting information that existed in the 3rd century AD?
5: Absolutely. I mean, you have to understand that often for these ancient philosophers, although many people have heard of their names, you know, everyone's heard of their Aristotle, their Plato, their Socrates, that might give a a kind of mistaken impression that we have a great deal of knowledge always about them, but we know exactly everything they ever wrote, said or did. But actually, like all knowledge about ancient history, finding anything out about them is, is a battle. Every sentence that we read, we have to fight with or even against to read it against the grain. And quite often, we have nothing, so something is always better than nothing. And Diogenes' pathological compendiousness makes him attractive in that regard.
2: Um, he's compendious in the sense that he like there's lots of philosophers in it. There aren't very many women. There's only one. Woman, I think in it you see why, there, why, are, why was why was There are that? a few relatives, but yes, not many. Why is that? Uh, and could he have included more? Are there? Is there a tradition of female ancient philosophy that's 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 underrepresented?
5: Absolutely, yeah. Well, Diogenes, why he himself didn't include them, since we know virtually nothing about him, is very hard to say. Um, although, of course. Ancient Greece was a pretty patriarchal society in general. The one he does talk about is Hipparchia, who at least wins the argument against the male philosopher that he reports on. Uh, So that's a good start. The bad uh, thing that happens afterwards is that the man gets so angry that he pulls up her dress, which is uh, probably rather indicative of uh, attitudes that existed at the time he certainly could have included more well he couldn't have included hypatia who lived a bit after who people have probably heard of but certainly people in the renaissance when um, diogenes was rediscovered very early collections were made of the lives of women philosophers in the epicurean sect in particular it seemed to be um totally valid for women to become philosophers to join the school and there are fragments of some of their writings that survive and which have been collected and which are often extraordinarily
2: fascinating how would he have looked at modern philosophers because um in some ways your discussion of him talking about the sex lives and the clothes and the tastes of them feels very modern it's it's sort of uh, an accusation about modernity that we sort of focus on the glib uh, but his approach to the sort of guru figures of the 20th century might have been something similar if he'd have been around now. Yes, and one thinks that
5: one couldn't always blame him. Philosophers um, have always sought to present themselves as living the life of a mind, but to live the life of a mind, one needs to eat, one needs to have a roof of, over one's head, unless that is what is. Diogenes, the cynic who lived in a barrel. But um, one also needs um, to have a certain degree of independence. In fact, philosophers pride themselves on independence. And independence then has now came with money. And so philosophers have had a tendency to approach those who can sustain their independence, who sometimes tend to be tyrants or other politically dubious Figures. I think just recently you reviewed a very nice book about Diderot and Catherine the Great, and of course, Catherine's political rule over Russia went against everything that Diderot preached. And it's been the same in the 20th century. If you think about philosophers of all political persuasions, whether right wing or left wing. So we might think of Martin Heidegger or Jean-Paul Sartre or Michel Foucault, who have quite frankly got, got into bed with tyrants or supported various really rather nasty regimes Not always necessarily for financial gain, but perhaps out of a sense that they needed to stand out and be different. And certainly Diogenes would have recognised that as a social type.
3: You say in your piece that he took a sly delight in mocking many of the philosophers that he wrote about. Was that the basis of his project or was the basis of it more he was just collecting the stories or is there a certain amount of envy at work and his uh, take
5: on things? That's an absolutely fantastic question. And if only we knew more about him, we might be able to answer it better. There are a few things to say. One is that we know that before he wrote The Lives of the Philosophers, he wrote a collection of poems focusing almost entirely on the deaths of great men and great thinkers. Now, we know this because some of these appear in the lives of the philosophers. They're usually truly terrible, but there is something in them, a kind of focus on the body. You know, Empedocles jumped into a volcano. Uh, Another philosopher laughed himself to death after making a not very good joke. So there seems to be Something in him of a desire to contrast these, these men, as we said, usually men, um, who claim to live of the life of the mind. There seems to be a desire to present them having by necessity to live the life of the body. So clearly there is something mocking there. Having said that, he clearly does respect a lot of them. And there is something very unusual about the very start of the book where he is incredibly proud, clearly, deliberately, of philosophy being a particularly Greek invention. Now, you might think that that would be a typically Greek attitude, but actually it wasn't. Usually Greeks said, oh, no, no, we got it all from the Egyptians or the Babylonians. They often told stories about how Plato or Pythagoras or Democritus went to learn at the feet of Egyptian sages. So clearly there's an almost kind of, to use an, acronym, an anachronistic term, nationalistic belief in the value or virtue of the Greek mind in Diogenes. So perhaps there is something truly celebratory in his account.
2: Yeah. Well, it's, uh, you, you, you bring him to life um, just now, Dimitri, and in, in the piece as well. So we're very grateful. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Um, it's another book to read. After we've done all of the years oh, of Lyndon <laughs> Johnson, I've got a lot of reading. Your challenge is to read the lives of the eminent <laughs> philosophers, and it's a new translation um, by OUP. And apparently, the new translation, uh, Dimitri Sel- says elsewhere, uh, is very good. So yeah, plenty to read. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Ruth Skur Dimitri Levitin, and Michael Lapointe. My thanks go to Ros. Thank
3: you.
2: You're very well. well. Thank you. Thank you. Don't <laughs> thank, thank you. me. Thank you. And we are. I, I genuinely think. We always say we're going to read books based on this.
3: Do you I a, actually will.
2: Yeah, I, well, do you remember about two years ago we talked about Dorothy Dunnett? Do you remember that on the podcast? No. No, <laughs> we did. Anyway, I finally—it took two years. Matt, our producer, pretending to remember that. Anyway, we did. Uh, Dorothy Dunnett writes historical fiction set in sort of Renaissance in oh, Scotland. I
3: actually do remember this. I remember you saying it I'm going to go and read it. Gonna, and then I found it in
2: a charity shop, and I read the first book, The Lyman Chronicles. Very good. So, so we, but we have to go and I think we do have to read the Caro okay. uh, make sure you're all using those codes to subscribe to the TLS next week we have an issue with a mini special on graphic novels comics and superheroes Thea will be flying back for that I'm sure until then from Roz and me goodbye